This is the, uh, the time in the service where we reflect on the death, burial and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I can feel that life can be j- just be so, so hard, you know. Like, um, on Friday, I had uh, a meningitis jab. And, um, thanks. Yeah, I had a, I had a meningitis jab before, since uh, all students need to get one before they go. And now I've got a pain in my arm and, and, and you know, <laughs> thanks. Um, and um, uh, yesterday I went and um, with the family and dropped some stuff off at the, the house I've been moving into for university. And it got me thinking that, you know, I've I got to be cooking for myself, ironing, financing. I've got to be responsible for myself. You know, life's just so hard, you know. <laughs> and I, I'm also still at home. I've got to keep my room tidy. I've got to obey my parents. I've got a long distance to travel for, you know, church meetings. And I can feel that life's just so hard, you know. And, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, with that in mind, let's, let's turn to 1 Corinthians. <laughs> Chapter 10, verse 13. It reads, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. You know, all the, all the trials that we go through, everyone else goes through inside the church and outside the church, you know. And God never gives us more than we can handle. And it's, it's always good to remember that for, for our trials, trials big, big or small, you know. Let's turn to John 3.16. It reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You know, when I think of my trials, I'm thinking about me. I'm not, God isn't in my mind when, when I'm thinking about how, how hard life is. And it's always good to just, you know, have, to remember God, remember how much he loves us to the point where you know, his, his only son died. You know, he, he went through a lot for us and he went through a lot more than, than, that, than I do or ever will. And, you know, Jesus went through a lot as well, you know. And let's turn to Isaiah 53 to look a bit more into that. In verse 5 it reads, But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And in verse 7 it reads, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. You know, Jesus, Jesus went through stuff that I can't imagine, you know. He went through unimaginable pain. He went he he had it worst. You know, and I can I can definitely be more grateful for that, you know. More grateful and remember him as I'm going through my trials that, you know, if Jesus could go through all that and not not even complain about it, then I can I can I can survive, you know. 
And you know, as we pray, let's let's think about how blessed how blessed we are and and what God has done for us. Let's pray for the bread. Father God. Well, it's great to think that uh, Curtis, as a baptized disciple, had his first communion a month ago and then was able to share with us some thoughts uh, before he leaves, uh, man, to really start a new chapter of his life. Big times in the Hanson family. We have some extra hankies at our place if you guys uh, ever feel the need. Let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. This is now our fifth sermon talking about the parables of Jesus and the kingdom of heaven. And as we talked about uh, pretty much every time, just repeated this idea, the kingdom is more than just a, um, a place, it's a relationship with God. Because the place of the kingdom is really the heart. And uh, if God isn't king in our hearts, then, then we're not part of his kingdom. It's, it's our hearts that actually enter his kingdom. It's our hearts and souls that have an internal, an eternal inheritance. And so the kingdom's all about the heart and about the kind of relationship that we have with God. You know, we've talked a little bit how the uh, parables, there were six of them in, in Matthew chapter 13, they sort of set us up for an idea. And that is that there's an, uh, this thing about the kingdom is, first of all, it's God's idea. It's God's plan. The kingdom is, of God is not a human conceived notion. Uh, God had this notion before He even made us. In fact, it was the very purpose for which He made us. When we enter His kingdom, we are fulfilling God's purpose in our lives. So there's this, this plan that's been there from be, the beginning of time. And then God, in some way, acted to bring that plan to light. And then what's interesting is the kingdom involves an invitation because God forces no one to be a subject in his kingdom. Now ultimately every knee will bow because God ultimately is the ruler of the universe. But in this moment of time called the human life on earth, uh, God's given us free will. And as we can very well see, just open up a newspaper, just look at the internet news, just listen to the radio, the world is not in submission to God. There are crazy things going on that, that just show the world is not paying any attention whatsoever to the heart and love of its maker. And so God has this idea, God initiates and God sets it going, but he actually requires that we respond. And so the kingdom is a two-way relationship. The kingdom isn't simply a one-way relationship. It's a covenant between two, and in this case, God and us. So with that uh, in mind, we're going to go to uh, a video clip, and this is Matthew chapter 21 to 16. This is the parable of the landowner looking for workers, and I thought we'd just use a, a video representation instead of reading it. It always makes it a little more alive. So, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, You also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. 
he went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. <laughs> about the eleventh hour he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, Why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us. They answered. He said to them, You also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them. Friend, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Great. Just so I say it, yes, Jesus is from New York. You can hear his accent. And uh, the landowner's from South Africa somewhere, as you can hear from his accent. But anyway, uh, now that's done, you don't have to think about that and worry about that anymore. Uh, you know, in this story, it's kind of an interesting story. Uh, you've got a landowner basically with a vineyard and no one working in it. So he's going out to get people to work in his vineyard. And he's basically got an idea that he's going to pay them for their work. And that makes complete sense, doesn't it? Come work for me and I'll give you something for it. So the landowner in the parable is God. That's pretty clear. He's set all this up. He's the one that's looking for workers to engage with him. But the workers, it's interesting, these are, these are all positive. You know, there's, this is the only kingdom parable that's a story that's really got just positive. Because even though you see some people grumbling, they still got paid. Now, now, do you know what I'm saying? They got paid. Everyone got paid. Everyone got invited to work. There's no mention in the story of someone not, not being willing to work, someone refusing to work. It's not talking about those that refuse. And it's not even talking about those that maybe start to work and then say, this is too hard and they leave. It's not talking about that either. It's talking about faithful workers. And everyone here receives a positive outcome. So I just want us to notice that because some of the parables are very strong. And some of the parables end with a judgment between, you know, the good and the bad and the faithful and the unfaithful. But this one's actually talking about the faithful. So we can find ourselves somewhere in this parable. Uh, so the workers, they were, you know, they, they went out, they, they were invited by the by the landowner to go and to work. But what's interesting, too, is the wages. A denarius, which was the stated wage at the beginning of the parable, when he first sent some workers out, I'll give you a denarius. Well, that's a day's wage. And so that's just the logical thing. You're going to work for a day? Here's a day's wage. 
But what was interesting is, people came at all sorts of different times through the day. But when he came to invite them, what he said was, I'll give you whatever is right. He actually didn't name the amount that he was going to give. So then when it came time to settle up, the the landowner chose to pay those that had only worked an hour a full day's wage. It was his decision. And he did that right up along until he then paid those uh, who had worked the full day. And even though Jesus is using the word wages here, from the context of this parable, he's not talking about getting paid for what you do. What he's talking about is being faithful in your decision of coming into his vineyard, of being a faithful worker. And actually, there is a reward. There is a reward. God has promised us eternal life. So we know that from other passages, we can't make this into sort of a works parable, like you got to work your way. Uh, in fact, when you really read it that way, it doesn't make any sense at all. Because the guys who worked an hour got paid the same. If this is about works, receiving equally or what you deserve, then it's, it doesn't make any sense. Really what it's talking about is the generosity of the landowner. That this is really about him. Uh, At the most basic level, Jesus' statement, the last will be first and the first will be last, it it sounds like a paradox. How can the last be first and the first be last? Uh, The the thing, I think about this verse all the time whenever I'm at the airport and you've got to get on a bus to go to your plane. Because if you get first on the bus, you're the last off. Yeah, that's just the way it works, okay? Because you get in and they say, you know, move in, move in, move in. And so you're the first one on and you're the last one off. That, that, that's not an enjoyable experience. But, you know, the idea of the first being last. Can you imagine in the Olympics, the guy who came last getting the gold? <laughs> and someone stands up and goes, but this is what Jesus said, the first will be last. I mean, uh, that would be very disturbing for all the athletes. Very disturbing. But see, there's something here that Jesus is trying to get at. There's a human way of looking at things that actually isn't right. And it's a real twist. Everybody went in the vineyard. Everyone that went in the vineyard, no matter how long, received the same salary. So overall, there's a very encouraging picture here. Uh, Every person that faithfully answers God's invitation to be part of his kingdom, a worker in his vineyard, will in fact receive the same gift at the end of the day. That's pretty encouraging. You know, just because you came late doesn't mean you're not going to get eternal life. And it's funny, I think sometimes people have read this and thought, well, boy, I'm going to put off getting baptized, becoming a Christian, because there's still a few things I want to do in my vineyard before I go and start working in God's vineyard. But the truth is, when you really understand the blessing of coming into a relationship with God, I have seen a number of people who, you know, became Christians and then died shortly after. Their regret is simply, I didn't have longer to serve in God's vineyard. They're not going, isn't it cool? I just was serving a few days, and uh, you've been doing this for years, and we get the same reward. Isn't that cool? And that's not their attitude. It was instead, I've missed those years, those years. Because what were we doing if we weren't working in his vineyard? What, what was it worth from an eternal perspective if it wasn't, in fact, under uh, God's rule? So it's interesting because 
God said, or the landowner said, I'm going to pay you what is right. Aren't you glad that God pays what is right, not according to our judgment, but according to His mercy? This rightness he's talking about is the exercise of His grace. It's not talking about some kind of measure that we are fulfilling. You know, there is a lesson here, though. Some, some have looked at this parable and think, well, this is talking about the Jews, and it's talking about the Gentiles. The, Jews would come, the Gentiles would come in later. The, the Jews didn't like that. And Though actually there was some truth in that, and Jesus told some parables about that. I don't really think that's the message of this parable. I think the message of this parable is, the longer we are saved, the longer we're working in the vineyard, we can get an attitude that we're entitled. We can actually start to believe that we didn't come in that way. We didn't come in thinking, I deserve this. I mean, repent and be baptized. How does that deserve eternal life? Believe that Jesus rose from the dead. How does that deserve eternal life? You haven't done anything. Repenting is, you've just said, I'm not going to sin anymore, and you've decided to move forward. That's it. There, there might not even be a lot of visible fruit of repentance yet. But the truth is, as we live our Christian life and as we make sacrifices, and I think some of the hardships Curtis described, uh, I think we actually could name a few harder ones. Uh, you know, I hope those are the hardest things he's experienced so far. But, uh, you know, life does... You get into places where you're not appreciated by people that you're trying to serve. You get into places where, you know, you, you're... you're, you're uh, uh, you don't know what to do. I mean, you ever been in a, in a situation where you don't know what is right or wrong? Right in that moment, you don't know what to do. You, there's dilemmas. Uh, things happen. Illness happens. You know, illness is something, and even death happens, and, and we, we just kind of think, I'm not ready for this yet. Where did this come from? And so, you know, we're faced with difficulties. Jobs get lost. Circumstances change. You know, the things don't work out the way we thought they would. We fell in love with somebody and they didn't fall in love with us. That's, that's, that's discouraging. You know, there's things that we face in life. And so it's important to understand that there are difficulties we will face. But no matter what we go through, we never get to a point where we have earned our salvation. Where we deserve it. So there's a temptation to think somehow we deserve it. And that's not right. Look over in Luke chapter 3. I just want to look at two scriptures here. Luke chapter 3. And this was the words of John the Baptist. And when you think about the message of, the, of Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, you can really actually understand a lot of the work that John the Baptist was doing because he was actually also preaching repent and be baptized. Now the meaning of baptism would slightly change with the resurrection of Jesus. It would become much deeper and, and a, a spiritual rebirth for people. But John the Baptist was actually there teaching people how to really repent. And then this idea of baptism, being immersed in water, he was also practicing that as well. So look what he says here to the crowds in Luke chapter 3, verse 7. It says, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized him to, by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. 
And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now this is strong language. But what he's saying is, to enter the kingdom, you're going to need to repent. And repentance is serious business. And repentance is a change of heart that you must make according to God's will. But we can't just sit here and go, yeah, but you know, I've got a, I've got a pedigree. My parents were Christians. My grandparents were Christians. I'm a Christian. You know, th- these people were claiming Abraham. Abraham had, had lived 2,000 years before. You know, let's put our hope in Abraham. We're his descendants. That's what's going to save us. John the Baptist is looking at them going, you don't understand repentance. This is a call to a change of heart before God. Look a little further, Ephesians chapter 2. This also totally dismisses any thought that we can earn our salvation. Ephesians 2, and we'll pick this up in verse 4. It says, But because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised up with us up with Christ and seated us with Him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is grace you've been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's interesting, you can see the resonance sort of of God's vineyard happening here. There is something actually God has prepared for us to do. He's calling us into His kingdom, not to sit idly, but to fulfill His purposes, to do His will. But it's interesting because these aren't according to our ideas, this is according to God. And where does this all begin? Verse 4, because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. We were dead, but He's made us alive. Coming into His kingdom gives us life. And this life is in His vineyard. We are His servants. And so there is this temptation to think, somehow I've earned it. You know, sometimes uh, we've been Christians for a while. We've made some sacrifices, but it's still nothing in comparison to what Jesus did for us. You know, this is a little bit of a shocking statement, but there's not going to be any evangelists in heaven. Now, I'm not saying I'm not going to be there. What I'm saying is, that role is an earthly role. That's part of serving in God's vineyard. You know, the roles that we have here in our, in our earthly service, they disappear. I'll tell you, just because you're an evangelist doesn't mean you'll be in heaven. But if you're a faithful disciple of Jesus, you will be. That's what it's about. It's about serving faithfully to the end. And that's what's in this parable. They work till the end of the day. And at the end of the day, they were called in. Now, some had worked just an hour. Some had worked three, five, seven. They worked different amounts. Some worked the whole day. But actually, it's not about 
the deserving of the wage. Because if you really understood it, the first guys who got killed in for the full day's work, they were being given a blessing. This is a parable about eternal life. Yes, give your life. But look what God's going to give you. It's so much more. So much more than a denarius. So much more. He is giving us eternal life with Him. You know, but there's also a temptation here. We can compare ourselves to others. You know, these guys, you know, they were just kind of, they got kind of excited right there. Look, the workers who came late, they're getting paid what we were promised. You know, to be honest, it doesn't matter what someone else is doing when it comes to your relationship with God. The question is, what are we doing in our relationship with God? It's a personal thing. Look over in Romans 14. Romans chapter 14. It's a great chapter. We're just going to pick out a couple of thoughts from it. But he's talking about people who believe differently than us. And you know, what's funny is, we believe differently in some ways than we did when we, 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 we grow in our faith, we grow in our understanding. So even if we look at ourselves 10 years ago, there's things we understand today maybe we didn't understand then. Well, look what it says here, starting in verse 1, Romans 14. Accept him whose faith is weak, without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man's the man, man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he, will, he stands or falls. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Go down to verse 13. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. And in verse 19, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and a mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. You know, what we need to be encouraging each other is not for us to be identical with each other, not to be exactly like each other. We need to be encouraging each other to be faithful workers in God's vineyard. We need to be encouraging each other just simply to be disciples of Jesus. But too often, we, we get a sense of security by homogeneity, that everyone is the same. And that, that makes us feel secure. But, and we think, we think everyone being the same, that's unity. Unity isn't everyone being the same. That's not unity, that's conformity. Unity is when we actually share a common purpose and goal that we all consider greater than ourselves, and that brings us unity. And you see how God's kingdom can bring us unity? It's not about us. It's about God. And so, you know, we, each one of us is a servant of God. Let's be careful not to judge each other in a way that discourages each other. 
Now, the scriptures do say when it comes to sin in each other's lives, judge each other. We've got to deal with sin. But when it comes to our preferences, when it comes to the way we like to do things, when it comes to sort of our person, there's a freedom there. Now, be careful that your freedom doesn't become a stumbling block for somebody else. And there's a lot of teaching in that. 1 Corinthians 8, the the last half of verse 1 and verse 2, it's on the board. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. You know, it's not about who knows the most. You know, salvation is about God. It's His vineyard. It's His vineyard. He's the one that's made the invitation. Let's just simply encourage one another to stay faithful in His service. It's clear that faithfulness is the final step in the plan of salvation. Perseverance. To simply continue to the end. If you leave the vineyard, you won't get paid. Now again, I'm not talking about deserving it. This thing that God is trying to give us is so much more than we could ever earn. It is a gift. You know, look over in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. Just another scripture. The Corinthians had a lot of division in their church. And it wasn't encouraging. And Paul stated a very high ideal for them in chapter 1. You should have one attitude and one mind together. That, that's a pretty high ideal. And he, he deals with division. The first uh, basically three and a half chapters are talking about what to do about this division. And he talks about the focus needs to be Christ. Christ is the one who's going to bring us unity. But what's interesting in this passage in 1 Corinthians 11, he's actually talking about the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper, if anything should make us unified, I don't know, but we are all breaking the same bread. Did you notice that? Though I'm actually uh, gluten-free, I still, every, every Sunday with a little bit of faith, just take a bit of that glutinous bread, because I want to eat what you guys are eating, okay? We're part of one body. I want to break that one bread together. And we drink one cup together. You know, there wasn't some, uh, you know, 2002 Bordeaux in some of the little glasses for the elite in the room. Okay? It was just grape juice going around. It's just the fruit of the vine. This, this isn't about, man, what can I afford? What can't I afford? This isn't about comparing ourselves with each other. And so here's Paul, who had actually started the church in Corinth, writing this first letter back to them. And, and actually challenging them about their unity. And look what he says in verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Now that's a really scary thought. Your, your meetings are actually doing more harm than good. Well, in the first place, I hear that when, some, when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. And then he goes on to actually talk about there was an economic factor there. You know, sadly, the Jews had this idea that economic blessing meant God's blessing. And if I had more economic blessing than you, then I must be doing better with God than you are. And we'll see that in the end, actually, because we're going to look at the parable, not the parable, but the story of the rich young ruler. What's interesting is, Wealth doesn't mean anything. What's wealth to God? Oh, God doesn't look down and go, wow, Donald Trump, he should be president because look how good that guy is with money. Like, that, God isn't impressed 
by money. God isn't impressed by our wisdom. He's not impressed by our knowledge. We know He's not impressed by our righteousness, that whatever we can produce. There's nothing about us that impresses God, except, interestingly, faith. Faith gets His attention. Because faith is a response to Him, and we can't have faith unless we look to Him. Faith is about us connecting with God. So, you know, we may be disciples different lengths of time. Our experiences are different. Our understanding and knowledge may be different. But we are still of equal value before God. We, our value doesn't change. Because we learned a little more. Or even if you get to be my age, you forgot what you used to know. I mean, you know, it does, your value doesn't change before God. It's not based on what you know. It's your heart in His kingdom. Is your heart in His kingdom? And is His kingdom in your heart? That's the question. You know, finally, I think this parable makes the most sense when we actually look at its context. Because the parable ended with these words, uh, the first will be last and the last will be first, but so did the passage before the parable. So let's go back and we'll actually look at that now. Matthew nineteen sixteen to 30. Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? The man inquired. Jesus replied, Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbors yourself. All these I've kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth. It is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will it be for us? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake 
will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And many who are last will be first. I think they understood him right till that moment. You know, it's interesting, uh, the context of this statement, because these are the only two times it's made in Matthew. And it's made one other time uh, in Luke. And it is, again, addressing the idea how people look at things isn't how God looks at things. The, the last being first and the first being last isn't some prediction about somehow if I manage to get in at the end, somehow I get to be first. It isn't talking about that. It's talking the way the kingdom works isn't the way we think it should work. God's thinking and God's understanding is wisdom. It's not our thinking and understanding. The disciples were imita- uh, intimidated by the rich young ruler's life. I mean, it's kind of sad. Here they are. They've already been following Jesus for a while. This guy rides up. I mean, in this you know, rendition, he doesn't even get off his horse, which is considerably, I would know, in the East, disrespectful to stay in a higher position than someone you're trying to speak to respectfully and speak down to Jesus and kind of ask him this question, which is all about him. But what's interesting is that, you know, Jesus' first comment was about the rich. Guess why? Because the disciples were listening. First of all, this guy was rich. He was impressive. But then he started saying, I've kept the law. And he's going down this list of the law. I've kept all these things. And there's Peter going like, well, if he follows Jesus, there goes my role. I can't compete with this guy. It was worldly thinking. And so Jesus is trying to get his disciples to understand something. What the world thinks is first actually might be last. What the world values is maybe not what God values. And in fact, maybe what the world doesn't value is what God values the very most. You know, he challenged this man, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. And he went away sad because he had great possessions. You know, it came like, what must I do? But actually the problem was his heart wasn't really there. He wasn't really asking a submissive question. He just wanted out of his convenience and his wealth to do one more thing to feel secure about. Jesus had already promised the apostles, the disciples, the kingdom blessings many times. He was telling them about eternal life. He was telling them about what was ahead. He'd made that clear. But Peter needed to be reminded And his uncertainty seemed to be rooted still in thinking in a worldly way. So the the challenge of this parable is to answer God's invitation to work in his vineyard and never forget that the blessings he promises are based in his generosity and not in how long we work. So it's a great parable. It's a positive parable. Uh, The next one has a little more black and white in it, a little more of the, uh, you know, the gnashing of teeth kind of stuff. But, but here's a parable where, in fact, it's a, it's a positive one. Everyone got paid. Everyone worked to the end of the day. But it's not because of their work they received what they did. It's the generosity of God. And let's remember that as we go through this week. Our salvation isn't based in us earning it. It's a free gift that we accept and receive in God's kingdom. Let's pray to